0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and I am so grateful that you are joining us today. Whether it is your first episode with us or your 140th, we are so happy that you are here as we share Asian American stories that help us resonate, be inspired, and to learn a little bit more about the vast richness of the diversity of our community. Today, I am so excited to share this conversation with a dear friend of mine, Dave Liu, who spent his career at the top of the investment banking game in technology and now is working on projects to help elevate the community. He is the author of a best-selling book called The Way of the Wall Street Warrior, Conquer the Corporate Game Using Tips, Tricks, and Smart Cuts. Really excited to share this conversation. You can learn more about Dave as you are listening to this going to lucrative.co. That's lucrative spelled with an L-I-U, which is the way we spell his name. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Dave Liu. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ears Americans. Hope you are uh, staying healthy and safe. We are recording this smack in the middle of December. Weather's getting chilly. It's actually in the 40s here in LA, which means it's like actually freezing by LA standards. COVID's not over yet. 2021's been a hell of a year uh, for our community. Obviously, we, we started in the pandemic pre-vaccinations. We were met with really unfortunate news continued news of attacks against our community. And we've done a lot. It's also been an interesting year where we've had a bunch of really cool stuff happen, like movies and TV shows and just representation for our community that has really, really made us proud. Um, Part of that puzzle for me, particularly as somebody who was in corporate America, somebody who now enjoys and has dedicated my life to getting Asian American stories into the universe, is when Cool people, successful people, well-accomplished people write books, which might be a little bit interesting for you to hear uh, from a podcast perspective, but books are always going to be the coolest thing that I think people can do to get their stories out there because a book, in essence, is forever. And so with me today is my friend Dave Liu. He's done it all. He has made a name for himself in the traditional ranks of not just corporate America, but at the upper echelons of the corporate world investment banking. And now is spending his time investing in businesses all over uh, with a particular focus on passing down that knowledge to the next generation of people. So he's got a brand new book out called The Way of the Wall Street Warrior. It's got a lot of words, but it's also got some cartoons. So for, for both sides of People who like to uh, learn through words and through pictures, it is there. We're going to talk about the book in a little bit, but want to welcome Dave to the show. Hi, Dave. Hey, Jerry. Thanks
1: for having me on.
0: I am so excited to, to chat with you. Before we get started, I do want to give a big shout out to our mutual friend, Bennett Kim, who is your classmate from HBS and, and somebody who I've crossed paths with. Fun fact, I used to indirectly work for him for a little bit as, as a contractor when I did new home sales in, uh, many, many careers ago. But thanks to Bennett for connecting us. Let's talk about the book a little bit before we, we dump into your personal story. Tell us a little bit about the book and it's been out for a few weeks now and, and tell us sort of what you've experienced with it, sharing it, getting feedback from people and and all the wonderful things that happens when you launch something big.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, the, the just kind of giving you a little bit of the origin story because I think we all generally like origin stories. Um, how this How this book actually came about was I started to uh, write down all the tactics that worked for me uh, in my career in cracking through the bamboo ceiling and getting to the top of one of the uh, world's major investment banks, a firm called Jeffries & Company. And I wrote a lot of these tips and tricks actually for my two boys. I have two young boys. Uh, one's nine and one's 12. So they're still very young. Uh, but I'm definitely getting uh, older in my age. And I had left the corporate world uh Uh, coming up on almost 10 years now. And so I started to forget a lot of the things that really worked for me that I didn't learn uh, in two of the best business schools in the world, that I never learned in any of the hundreds of hours of HR and leadership training that I was forced to take. Uh, And I really learned through uh, trial and error and through the school of hard knocks. So I started to write down all these ideas and things that work for me, everything from how to conduct myself in a meeting to how to negotiate for compensation to how to get promoted. And I started to put together what I joke was kind of my, my family's manifesto. And during the pandemic uh, while I was, uh, you know, working with a few of my companies and I had some free time, I started to brush it up and, and uh, edit it. And a good friend of mine who was a writer Uh, pinged me and wanted to know what I was up to. I told him about the manifesto in passing and he said, Hey, send it, send it over. Let me take a look at it. I sent it over. He looked at it and he said, Hey man, this is really interesting stuff. I've never read or seen anything like this. And uh, I think you should publish this as a book because I think it could help a lot more people than just your two boys. Um, And ultimately, uh, even though I didn't really know what I was signing up for, Uh, I decided, you know what, I think this makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that I've really dedicated my life to is uh, focusing on philanthropy. And I felt that I could turn this book project into a charitable project. And the way I thought about it was I could help people by giving them tools to optimize and maximize their career potential in many ways similar to uh, the uh, the religious analogies around, you know, you give you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Uh, you teach him how, uh, how to fish, he eats for life. Uh, and so my idea was if I could write a book that could give you tactical help, then I could teach you how to fish for the rest of your life and hopefully help you uh, realize your full potential. Uh, and I felt that I could really help those communities that feel woefully underrepresented in corporate America – not the least of which is Asian Americans, and I know we're going to obviously talk about that, given uh, you know my personal interest in it and yours as well. But I also felt that Asian Americans in particular uh, don't really get a lot of tactical training uh, from anyone, and we really are left up to our own devices to figure out how to uh, get to the upper echelons of, of corporate America. Um, and so I felt that turning this manifesto into a book. Uh, would be helpful to lots of people. And then I pledged 100% of the proceeds of the book to charity. So, on kind of two sides, it could help a lot of people by spreading ideas and help uh, charities that I believe in uh, by uh, raising proceeds. And the, the two charities that I really focus on kind of cluster into two categories. One is uh, charities that are focused on helping cleft affected uh, babies and children uh, because. Uh, I am a cleft-affected person. I was actually born with a very, very severe uh, version of it. Uh, and I feel a strong uh, personal tie towards the community, and I want to help the community. And then second, uh, I dedicated a proceeds from the book towards Asian-American charities, those that are really focused on helping grow uh, Asian-American media representation, uh, charities like Gold House, uh, and then charities that are focused on uh, stopping Asian hate which, uh, as you and I both know, continues even to this day, despite what the mainstream media is, is effectively not reporting uh, anymore. So that's how I got to a point where I, uh, I wrote this book, and uh, you asked about how's it going so far. So <clears throat> the book was published on uh, November 9th by Wiley, and so we're, we're just a little over a month uh, after the launch. And uh, I'm very, very happy with what's happened since then. Uh, the first two weeks, we sold almost 10,000 copies, uh, which is a which for those of you that are in the book world, that's, that's actually a pretty good number. <laughs> uh, may, maybe those of you that are in the internet world, that might not seem like a lot, but in the book world, that's, uh, that's pretty good. Um, and we uh, reached a bestseller, a top 10 bestseller on Amazon in the business finance category, uh, number one hot new release in business finance and in economics. Uh, in the uh, on the Amazon, and uh, top, a top 10 bestseller on Porsche-like books uh, as well. And there's a few others uh, to come, but uh, overall, I'm very happy with uh, at least the, the the metrics. I will tell you that uh, what, what has really warmed my heart is that I've been giving a lot of talks uh, summarizing some of the key principles in my book. And I've been giving a talks at schools that I graduated from. Like uh, University of Pennsylvania Wharton, uh, I've given talks at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, uh, University of Chicago, um, and I will tell you that the vast majority of people who show up for my talks are Asian Americans, and the amount of uh, just receptivity and uh, just reaction, positive reactions, has been overwhelming, frankly. And I will, I will tell you the general gist of the feedback I'm getting is. I think multi, multi-fold, but one of them is, you know, this, we've never had a senior Asian corporate exec ever come talk to us. <laughs> it's almost always Caucasian guys, right? So it's kind of interesting to to hear from someone that isn't kind of a mid-level Asian American, but someone that's, that's senior that's kind of been up the corporate ladder. Um, and then you're, you're telling us a lot of stuff that, frankly, nobody else has told us. Uh, you know, there's there's a environment where... You know, particularly if you're, you grow up in an Asian American household, where you're taught that y- you know follow the rules, work hard, and you will get ahead in life. Uh, you're taught that you got to be good at everything, and you got to get A's in everything to be good uh, and, and 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 be successful. Uh, we're taught that you know you got to respect your boss, and you got to respect the chain of command, uh, no matter what you feel about them. And you're really the first person. That has told us that all of that is bunk. <laughs> all of that will actually lead to a unfulfilling career or a flameout at middle management. And so there's a lot of good receptivity to uh, the content of what I'm sharing. And Jerry, that was really my goal. My goal was in very, in many ways, I'm a huge movie buff, and I tell people when I talk uh, through my book that think of me as a character in the movie The Matrix. Think of me as the character Morpheus who offers the blue pill to the main character Neo or the red pill. The blue pill lets you continue to live the life you have where the corporate world is a meritocracy and if I work hard everything will work itself out but I'm offering you the red pill. I'm offering you a way to rethink the way you should manage your career Uh, and What I'll tell you, Jerry, is a lot of people want to take the red pill. (laughs) A lot of people want to know what what it really takes to scale the corporate ladder. And as someone that has done that and worked with thousands of companies in my career, um, I'm really honored and excited about sharing what what I've learned the hard way with with the next generation so that they can maximize their full potential and, and frankly, lead happier, less frustrating lives uh, on the corporate side.
0: I think we can talk for like the next four hours on everything that we feel very passionate about. I mean, you know, one of the things that I think of, of the many amazing points that you made is this thing about context and resonance. Many of our parents, when they came here, one, they saw themselves as the foreigner with the need to assimilate because to them and to still many of us, America isn't a diverse country. America is a white country and us being Asian, we had to fit into their system. And so when we think about and, and look at those of us and in other you know, marginalized communities that make it in the traditional sense, whether it be business or government, it's really hard to find, and it is rare, and I totally understand why, people who then make it to the top being proud or at least being aware and cognizant of what that identity meant with respect to their success. So I think it's really awesome that you've done it and that you are spending time and I've seen you on social media talking to Asian youth. And obviously I I think it goes both ways. I obviously host a show called the years Americans. I create a lot of other content on LinkedIn or the places that isn't Asian American specific, but like you it hit early on that the people who listen to me, who follow me are younger, younger kids who look like me for two reasons. One, they realize that following mainstream advice isn't working because they lack the context of what it means to be us. And two, privileged white dudes aren't coming to an Asian dude for life advice because they have plenty of other places to get it that works for them. And so they don't need to go seeking for it from somebody who they don't have any resonance with. Right. And so I I think it's, it's wonderful. Obviously this book isn't written just for us, but it has a special resonance because when we go to Barnes and Noble, when we go to independent bookstore and we go down, especially the business book aisle, there's not a lot of three letter last names. And so I want to change that. And I, I get it. And, and don't get mad. Asians are very diverse, and I get it. And there's uh, certain certain Kirtwell's cultures with long last names, too. But Dave has a three-letter last name, and I have a three-letter last name. So we'll start there. And, and that's why I think it's really, really cool. And, you know, we, we talk about generational shift. And I think certainly Asian Americans have done an amazing job standing on the shoulders of our parents and our ancestors to come to this country and, and to just in one generation really change the way that we can do things. And not just stopping there, but for you, really thinking about your kids, as I have, to say, hey, I want them to grow up in a different world and, and to give them that advice. So let, let's talk about your your beginnings. Um, we know from having met you, you know, you went to great schools, you've worked at some amazing places, you're at a place in life now where you can dedicate most of your time, energy, and you know, resources to helping other people. Most people don't write business books to give it all away, but you have. Um, where, where did this all start? Where, where And then you did mention, and, and I want to uh, acknowledge it and thank you for sharing about, how you were cleft affected and how that's also shaped the way that you saw yourself and how perhaps others saw you in both your professional and personal journey. Tell us about little Dave, how did the Liu family become uh, Chinese American and, and all, the, all the fun stuff about your youth?
1: Yeah, so my, my parents, uh, and, and this is highly relevant to the conversation. So my father uh, is Shanghainese and literally took the slow boat from China to study in the U.S., and studied, landed in Mississippi, and then ultimately built, built his professional career in Houston. But during that period of time, he was here in the United States in the 1960s, and he encountered massive racism uh, in, in this country. Uh, he used to tell me, uh, not, not in a funny way, he used to tell me that the first time he really realized how, uh, how racist this country was, uh, was when he attended a football game uh, between Baylor and rice rice University, and uh, all of the and he he was at Baylor at the time. Uh, the chant from Baylor was "What comes out of a chinaman 's ass the answer rice rice, rice and he was the only Chinese person that he could see in the whole stadium, so you can imagine what he felt like at that time he also um, and I actually posted about this. He also cut a record, uh, a record, uh, a, a, a musical record, and the only label that would sign him was a label called Oriental Records. And you you won't see the sleeve, but I can show you one of these days. In the sleeve, it describes him as a Chinaman. <laughs> so that's the environment that he grew up in. My mother is was born in the Philippines, and she came over largely because her brother was uh, a military uh, US uh, military officer who was a doctor and at the time you could bring over uh, your kid your siblings to the United States so she came from a world where she really loved this country because this country gave her and her siblings everything so i got grown up i grew up in this household which was really a dichotomy of the best of america and, and the worst of america i was born here i was actually born in Houston but we actually moved back to hong kong which is where I grew up, and the reason why that is really relevant, at least to the way I think about the world, is that for about a third of my life, I grew up in an environment where I was the majority, I was not the minority, I was the face of the majority, and I didn't feel like a second class citizen. I didn't feel like you know I was treated any differently in that environment. Uh, I only really started to feel kind of the minority status when I came to the United States, and I looked around and <laughs> said, "Wow, you know I'm now the minority and the majority in power, it doesn't look like me. And if I were to distill one of the key advantages that you have, if you're the majority in power, is that you give people of the same ethnicity and gender the benefit of the doubt. You do not give that to people that aren't the same gender and don't look like you. And that makes it more challenging if you're a minority or you're a woman and the people in power are men of a certain ethnic group. So. I just could kind of give you that kind of overarching lens at how I viewed the whole uh, minority-majority status. Now, obviously, I, I, I told you about my, uh, my cleft. And uh, for, for a lot of people, uh, clefts are viewed as a curse, just being very blunt about it. Um, I was born with a massive hole in the center of my face. Uh, I had uh, tubes in my ears. And I had a little bit of a speech impediment, uh, but thank God, after eighteen years, eighteen long years of treatment, which included eleven surgeries, um, multiple hospital visits and treatment, like this is a finished product. And at least more what my wife tells me, it's not bad. <laughs> so you know, th- things worked out okay for me. Uh, but what that what that did for me was two things. One is that I actually look at the cleft. As a blessing, not a curse. Because what the cleft did for me was it really helped me become a tough SOB. I uh, was constantly teased uh, when I was growing up, I was constantly stared at. And what you learn over time is you really learn not to care what other people think about you. And you really try to find your own North Star because you actually see the worst in humanity. And then you realize that you can either get absorbed with all that or you just have to live on your own on your own terms. So I think first and foremost, um, I like to joke that I developed rhino skin. Skin is as tough as a rhinoceros. And that has really helped me in my corporate career because I think having thick skin is a superpower as you are rising the corporate ladder and you're trying to achieve whatever you want. So that's first and foremost. The second, and this ties back to philanthropy, I can say definitively, that I am the beneficiary of all the human beings that came before me. Uh, I, if I was born even ten years earlier than when I was born, I may not be alive today. Even today, with all the technology we have, if a cleft affected baby is not treated, they're likely to die by the time of, uh, they turn eighteen, and the and the mortality rate is ninety percent. So. You need, if you're a cleft-affected person, you need all the latest surgeries, treatments, et cetera, in order to just survive. And so because of that, I'm incredibly grateful. <laughs> I'm grateful to humanity and what life has given me. And I feel very strongly that if you ever reach a position of privilege or success, you owe it to all your brothers and sisters to give back in any way you can. And it doesn't have to mean like writing big checks. It just means that you need to make the world just a little bit better than when you first entered the world. (laughs) And so that's what I'm trying to do. And that's what drives me. And for me personally, I can't change a lot of things. There's a lot of things in the world that I can't change. But what I can do is I can help people that are underrepresented realize more of their potential. I can help Asian Americans in particular who I feel need help and will only get help largely from other Asian-Americans, so I feel a duty to help other Asian-Americans. And on the cleft-affected side, I feel very strongly that um, I'm very lucky, I'm very fortunate, and if I can provide some source of inspiration to cleft-affected kids who are bullied or parents of cleft-affected people who are wondering, oh my God, is my kid ever going to be accepted by society? If I can provide just a small ounce of inspiration where they look at someone like me and they say, well, if this kid was able to make it, then maybe my kid too, then I've done my job. So that's kind of how I became the Dave Liu that you see here today. Uh, It's it's a combination of what happened with my parents, their experience in America, my experience in Hong Kong, in Asia, and now where I am today in in my life.
0: Wow. Thanks for that. I I, I think... So far, far too often, particularly, I think, in, in our culture, we'd like to celebrate the last chapter or the most recent chapter of people's lives. People certainly, as, as an entrepreneur or as, you know, somebody who is a creative, most people will tell you that everybody comes out of the woodwork to give you a pat on the back once you've, quote unquote, made it in their eyes. And they don't really seem to have as much curiosity about how you got there. But context is everything. Building blocks are Everything you know, without the experiences that your father had and that your mother had and that you had as a child, you're not who you are. And and I think we live in this false sense of, you know, meritocracy, certainly in higher education and the schools that you and I went to or in the places that you and I have worked where it's this, if you work hard enough, you study hard enough, then everybody has a fair shot, partly because I think it makes the people at the top feel better about either having, I guess, discounting the privilege that they were blessed with or, even playing down the additional struggles that might make their peers see them in a different light. But it is absolutely imperative that we understand from where you came and what mindset you had growing up uh, under what circumstances, because that actually, it doesn't make the story better, but it makes the story appropriate. Because without understanding all of this, somebody can look at you and go, oh, he's just a really rich, successful, former banking executive now like sitting on boards of companies and giving away his money for his own ego. And, oh, he wrote a book? I don't want to read that, right? And that's on paper what somebody can say without no understanding where you come from and what your actual agenda is or what your motivations are. And so thank you for that. When you started in banking, I would imagine that similar to, not as drastic perhaps as your father's experience sitting in a Texas football stadium, which doesn't sound fun as, a, as an Asian American person, particularly in Waco, Texas, what made you want to get into investment banking? I, I don't imagine that there were too many of us and perhaps as crass as the industry seems now, I'm sure it wasn't any more, definitely not psychologically or emotionally safer back then to be an Asian American person going, going into it. But wh- why the decision to go into banking coming out of Penn? And I guess, how did you, why or how did you stick with it for decades? which is also rare in the business.
1: Yeah, so I'm not ashamed to say that I initially went into investment banking for the money. <laughs> so when I was a uh, freshman in college, uh, I got a call from my dad and it was it was not a good call. It was essentially, look, I got some bad news. We're, we're essentially broke. We don't have any money. So you're at you're, you're this fancy school. I'm very proud that you're in Ivy League school, um, but I have no way to pay for it. And so you're you're on your own. And so to make a long story short, I, you know, had three work-study jobs. I switched to an engineering and business degree from a math degree. Uh, and I just worked my tail off in order to get through school and make sure that I was highly marketable, frankly. And um, when I graduated from Penn, I had about $100,000 in debt. And this is 1993. So 100,000 today might be worth with inflation and everything, maybe like 300 grand. So it was a lot of money. So I had a lot of debt. And my family was we – we were not at food stamps. Well, we, were, we were pretty close. Uh, me and my younger brother and my mom, we lived essentially in a one-bedroom in, a, in a, a poor town, poor, poor part of Houston. Uh, we, we were – I was helping my mom sell costume jewelry out of our trunk. Uh, and we were – we were, It was tough. Honestly, just being very open, and so you, you know, I was uh, nineteen uh, when when I was kind of contemplate what I was going to do. I uh, had worked uh, on Wall Street. I actually had done a summer internship at Goldman Sachs, and something very interesting happened to me there as well. Which was the following: um, I was part of a team, and there were three gentlemen in particular that that uh, that really formed the way I thought about Wall Street one was a uh, was an asian american a chinese american fellow uh he was by far smarter than everybody else he worked harder than everybody else but he didn't advocate for himself and i would see people take credit for his work all the time and he was totally cool with that and fast forward uh many years later i looked him up on linkedin he ultimately did get to managing director level but he had to leave goldman sachs and it probably took him a full 10 years longer than it would have taken anybody else so that was one uh person i was exposed to and it was really the first time jerry that i start to realize hey maybe the world isn't fair (laughs) maybe just working hard and being great at what you do is not enough uh second there was another individual roughly the same level as him who if he worked 20 or 30 hours a week that was a lot this guy would come in late and he would leave early and there was always a rumor that the reason why that was tolerated was because he was related to one of the partners at the firm. And so that, again, that was my first exposure. I was 18 at the time. That was my exposure at 18 to this whole idea of nepotism and cronyism, right? Like it's more about not only who you know, but who your who your dad is or your mom is than actually what you know how to do. And obviously for me, with, with a dad who abandoned us and being at poverty, like that worried me. <laughs> like, okay, I, I'm not getting any freebies from, from my parents. And then third, there was an individual that kind of ran the group or w- was kind of the key guy. He didn't work very hard either, honestly. But this guy had a magnetic personality. He was the kind of guy that you would literally jump over a cliff for because he was such a fun guy. He was uh, dynamic and he really brought out the best in everyone. But but he wasn't the smartest guy in the world. He didn't work very hard, but he had that it factor. He had that leadership quality. And what I saw in him was not only he could manage the people below him, but he could manage up really well. Like his boss loved him. And so I looked at him and go, wow, this guy is amazing, right? I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy one day because he's not working that hard. He's probably getting paid way more than everybody else. And everybody loves this guy. And so I got exposed to that at 18. But one of my biggest takeaways, Jerry, from from all of that and working at Goldman Sachs was I looked at it and go, you know what? There's a lot of money around here. I saw paintings on the wall that were probably worth a couple hundred grand at the time. And I looked around and said, you know what? This place, there's a lot of money around here. And I think I could do this job. I think I could do, I think I could work here. I could work in this environment. So first and foremost, that gave me the impression that uh, i could I could accomplish a lot here i could I could make it here, and then second, I needed the money <laughs> and I needed it badly and so that's how I first initially got into wall street uh, when when all the banks came calling and they looked at me and uh and part of the reason why I stayed was as I started to progress within the firm uh my compensation and my title and my power grew exponentially, and I started to focus. On areas like technology and internet that I really, really enjoyed. I'll I'll be honest, when I first started my career, working on financial models and PowerPoint presentations for yet another oil refinery or yet another, you know, dying retailer was not interesting. But once I got kind of mid-career and I was working on, you know, showing stuff to Google or taking Yelp public or uh, looking at things for Yahoo to sell, right? That was exciting. The whole Web 1.0 and the Web 2.0, which was really the core of my banking career, was super exciting. And so that's why I ultimately stayed. And uh, and ultimately, a big part of the reason why I left the business was I turned 40 and I had my second kid. And I could slowly see myself turning into that cliche. I, I could slowly see myself turning into that absentee dad who one day goes home and the kids don't know him, and the wife is hanging out with the gardener. <laughs> and I didn't want that to happen to me. So that was partly the reason why when I had had a 20-year run uh, in investment banking, I decided to uh, start to begin the process of retiring. And it, and it took another full kind of four, four and a half years to fully leave the business. So when all said and done, I spent almost 25 years on Wall Street, uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. But that's largely why I ended up staying a lot longer than most. Uh, it was because I was good at it. I enjoyed it. I was making a lot of money. Uh, but at the, at, at the end of the day, um, I got to a point where family and doing a lot of other things with the rest of my life became much more important than just taking yet another company public and ringing the bell of the NYSE or pushing the buzzer on the NASDAQ.
0: I, I still sense a little bit, Dave, the sort of wanting to... Be the good dad, the present dad, as as I've decided to do, and leaving a job that required me to travel full time, albeit at a much earlier chapter of my career, with with young kids, and and yet I still see the passion that this business brought you. You're grateful for what the business has taught you, and certainly the opportunities that it's brought you. How do you draw the balance between knowing all the, for lack of a better term, the the crap you dealt with, the long hours? I can't imagine banking pre fast internet or apps or stuff, Um, different time for a different conversation. But like, how do you balance that, right? Because you also mentioned like you wrote this book, you are, you know, on a mission to tell people, particularly your kids' generation and and around that sort of how to be successful in this corporate world that you know very well firsthand doesn't allow for the balance that you seek in your life now. Do you think it's any better now in, in the banking world than you started, you know, almost 30 years ago? We see, I mean, you know, I have friends that are in the, in the industry from, from B-School and other places, and it doesn't seem like it. They just throw more money at them instead of making it better. Is, is that sustainable? Is that, how, how does that fit into sort of where, where you stand in terms of, do you want your kids to go into it and, and go through the same experience that you had? Obviously, they're walking into different circumstances than you did from a need perspective, from an access perspective. But how, how do you balance that for yourself and wh- how you want to carry that down?
1: Yeah, so I will respond to that by telling you what I will tell my boys when the time comes and they ask me all about career life and plan. I think first and foremost, what I would love them to do with their lives is I would love them to be an entrepreneur. I would love them to create something new and be the boss. And I think that ultimately will give you the most satisfaction because to me, that is the closest thing that you can get to parenthood in the corporate world. And there is nothing, as you know, Jerry, there's nothing that can replace the, the benefit and the pain, <laughs> the benefit of being a parent and, and the reward that you feel. And I really do believe that when you think about your corporate life and your, and your career, I do think of it in that way. It's, it, in many ways, it's kind of like, uh, you're, you're either the, the parent birthing the child uh, if you start your own company, or you're the midwife. You're someone that helps someone else realize a dream. But there's going to be great times where you're high-fiving because you closed a big deal or a big contract. And there's going be low times when you get rejected or you lose a deal or you lose an employee or whatnot. So first and foremost, what I would ideally like my kids to do is I'd like them to go start their own business, do their own thing. Um, but then reality and statistics Uh, seep which is the following. Not all of us are going to be Eric Yuan of Zoom. Not all of us are going to be Jerry Yang. Not all of us can be boss. The reality is that most of the world will still work for someone. (laughs) Most of us, you know, will still have to work for someone in a corporate environment unless you happen to be a solitary writer writing a book in the woods. (laughs) You're going to have to learn how to work with other people and navigate the, the corporate a hierarchy. And with that, there is no free lunch in this world. If you want to get ahead, you have to work hard. One of the things that I talk about in my book is the idea of winner's curse. And the winner's curse essentially is that when all things being equal, with everyone has the same information, he who wins or she who wins ultimately has to act irrationally in some manner. Because if all things being equal, like there's no way you would be winner because everyone will put in the same amount of effort. And and I have seen that time and time again in the corporate world. The people that are truly successful, that didn't get it by just dumb luck or didn't get it because they inherited it, they work freaking hard. <laughs> they work really, really hard. And this idea that you can just wake up and start a billion-dollar company is just a complete misnomer. It just doesn't exist. Every company that you see today that the media reports on appears to be an overnight success but you and i both know that for a lot of those companies they've been toiling away for a long time with many near-death experiences but by the grace of god or by the grace of the founders you know they were able to save themselves and most of the time it's because the founders are burning the the candle on both ends so i think that working hard generally is synonymous with uh being successful not always You know, There's a lot of situations where you can get lucky or, like I said, you can uh, figure out a hack that that helps you. But I think for the vast majority of us, in order to ascend and be really successful, you you need to work hard. And so what drove me through my career was a combination initially of fear, not having enough food to eat and not being able to take care of my family. But then over time, it came down to, look, in order for me to be successful at Jeffrey's where I don't have – the Goldman Sachs sweatshirt or the Morgan Stanley emblem, right? I got to work harder. I got to try harder. Like the slogan, Avis versus Hertz, the car company. I just got to try harder. Uh, otherwise, somebody else is going to take that company public. Somebody else is going to sell that company. And so for many, many years, that's what really drove me. That it, it drove me towards trying to be successful by by sheer effort, honestly. Because when you look at any industry – at the, at the upper echelons, it is always, always a game of inches. It is always, look, you know, I don't care if you're in the venture capital business. Yeah, you could be Sequoia, you could be Excel, you could be Andreessen Horowitz. But if there's a super hot company out there, I guarantee you there's a dogfight measuring in inches between those three firms to get into that deal. And the guy who wins or the gal who wins usually is the one that puts in that irrational amount of effort in order to win that deal. And so, this idea of not having to work so hard to be successful is a complete mirage. It applies in every single sector, in every single competitive industry. Now, for me, what, what really helped was being grounded and not getting caught up in what was uh, helping you know other people or trying to keep up with the Joneses, which I think is, frankly, a very, very dangerous mindset to have. And so I knew that for myself, there were always going to be a bazillion more people out there, and they were going to be more rich, more powerful, you know, more famous than I ever could be. But I didn't care about that. And again, this brings back to my roots on not caring about what other people think, you know, because of my cleft upbringing. And so once I reached a certain uh, amount of uh, wealth and a certain uh, level of achievement in Wall Street and on the corporate side, I decided that it was fine. I could leave. I could like a Michael Jordan I could leave on top and I'd be totally fine with it. And I wanted to start to transition my effort away from just work and towards my family. And I know there's going to be people that listen to this who uh, won't like what I'm about to say, but I fundamentally don't believe that there is such a thing as work life balance. I think it's a work life trade off. And if you are willing to, have maybe not as fully optimized, successful career, uh, and maybe a more balanced uh, uh, personal life, then that's a trade-off that you need to make for yourself, and that's totally fine. Nobody's going to judge you. I'm not going to judge you, for sure. But for me and for my wife, thank God, um, our 20s and 30s were all about maximizing both of our career potential, salting away as much money as we could and getting as senior and as high as we could. But we both knew – that before that biological uh, elevator door shut we wanted to have children and so we both knew that we were going to probably have children you know the door wasn't going to be shut but it was it was closing pretty fast and so we both knew we were going to have kids probably towards you know our late 30s and so mentally we were both of a mindset that when we started to have an age that had a big four in front of it like that would probably be the time for us to start to transition out and so she and I actually both took the leap at the same time. We both essentially retired from our corporate careers at the age of 40 when we had our second kid. Um, and that worked for me. And um, I didn't plan all of this, Jerry, but I did in my 30s start to think about this work-life trade-off. And I started to think about, okay, I'm I'm uh I'm on a very steep gradient on the career side, and my my personal life is largely non-existent except for my wife, right? But we don't have children, so it makes it a lot easier. But at some point, as I approach 40, this career trajectory has to start to asymptote and come down. And and my personal life needs to start coming up because time and life is a zero-sum game. Somebody's got to give. And so that's how I approach these things. And I tell people that don't like to hear what I just said, I say, look, life is all about trade-offs. And what I don't want to hear from you is I want to have it all. I just don't think that's possible. And people that tell you that, I think, are lying to you. It's just not possible because we only have 168 hours a day, uh, 168 hours a week. And so that's how I've kind of managed my life. And that's why now I'm heavily over-indexed towards family life, making sure that I'm there to take my kids to school, to pick them up, to have dinner, breakfast with them. Um, And I'm I'm really happy because I know through the lens of a 9-year-old and 12-year-old, they've never seen a world where – Daddy is not home. <laughs> They've never seen a world where they don't know that I ha- I'm not there, right? And, and to me, that's mission accomplished because I didn't want to be that absentee dad. And, uh, and it's really important to me to be a great dad. That, that's one of the, the, the number one things on my bucket list. You know, when, when it's time for me to move on, like I want to be known as a great dad. Entrepreneur, banker, writer, that's way far down the list. For me, it's being a great dad.
0: And I think it's also important to know, because I've struggled with this too, man, just I work from home, both my kids go to preschool. And so like, I enjoy picking them up. But like, that's sort of when my workday ends, so I need to control, I need to build this business and start new ones to make sure that I can provide for them in the long run. But I also enjoy spending time with them. Well, one thing that I've learned is just do what works for you and be open to change and and who cares what other people think, because that judgment is Personal judgment, self-judgment is, is probably one of the toughest things of, you know, are you uh, a good enough dad? Are you spending enough time with them and all these things? And I think, you know, you, you've struck a good balance. And I think doing things that, whether it is from a business perspective or from a community perspective, overall, just to leave this world a little in, in, a, in a better place and opportunity, I think economic opportunity by sharing secrets that we weren't told. They think our parents did well for themselves, but they weren't. They didn't have fraternity brothers from XYZ Ivy League school that they could call and saying, hey, Jerry needs a job because we know that that's how many other people get opportunities. And on paper, it just sounds wonderful, but we don't have those things. We don't know, you know, my parents had no idea what American childhood traditions were because they didn't grow up here. And, and yet we are expected to perform at or higher levels, falling, to, falling victim to the modern minority myth just because we study hard. But it is such a wild balance, and an almost an impossible thing, as you said, to balance. And so there are a tremendous amount of trade offs. And so if if you're listening and you don't have kids yet, and you're like, "What the hell are they talking about?" I I, you know, I didn't know either, right? Because you don't really know until it, it changes you. It's the one or two things that really changes who you are fundamentally as a human being. Let's talk about your book a little bit as as we wrap here. You mentioned at the top sort of the backstory, but what do you want? Legacy to be.
1: What I what I really want what would make me super happy is for people to internalize what they read in my book, and maybe extract from that one or two, or ideally many, but at least one or two tactics from my book that help them ascend the ladder, maybe a little faster, get paid a little bit more. Or frankly, just think of the world very differently in a different light. And, and I'll give you a perfect example, because this really goes counter to the Asian-American immigrant uh, model, if you will, that we're taught from a young age, which is the following. You know, when when you think about rising the corporate ladder, um, what's now been proven through science and through research done by Harvard is that there are really three key things that appear to drive. Uh, both higher promotion rate and also higher compensation. And two of them, I think, are very obvious, okay? It's uh, conscientiousness and extroversion, right? Makes sense, right? I'm very conscientious, like I keep at it, and I'm extroverted or I'm telling people about all my achievements, right? And we've heard that time and time again, right? But the third one, which, again, is proven in a a research study done by Harvard in uh, 2018, so it wasn't that long ago, okay? Okay. The people that actually ascend and get up faster and get paid more are less agreeable, not more agreeable. They are more abrasive, not less abrasive. And I can tell you, Jerry, from my own experience, when I when I have dealt with corporate execs that reached to the top of organizations, CEOs, C-level execs, SVPs, not the people that started the company, because that's a little bit of a different animal when you started the company, you put yourself a CEO, but the people that have actually played the corporate game and risen to the top, they are definitely tough people. They are definitely uh, people that understand how to play the game. And most of the time they're not very agreeable. So I can tell you not only from the lens of what the Harvard research says, but my own anecdotal experience is like, yeah, it's absolutely true. Conscientiousness and extroversion help, but like being uh, unagreeable and like not taking crap and like, looking out for yourself, right, which tends to be, makes you less agreeable, right, does ultimately lead to a more more economic and, and um, promotional success in a lot of companies. So I just give you that as one example of many, as you've seen in my book, right, uh, around like this red pill, which is you got to rethink the way that you approach your career. And you can't look at it like a, a a game where the rules are set. They're not. They're highly fluid. And sometimes people will play the game ethically. Sometimes they won't. And you've got to figure out how you're going to play the game. And don't be uh, so upset if you swallow the red pill, you kind of know how the game is played, and you're not able to maximize your potential. So my, my, my goal ultimately, Jerry, is to help people that feel underrepresented to uh, accomplish – as much as possible using some of the tactics I have in my book. And my my broader agenda, Jerry, is that I would really love to see a world where more Asian-Americans garner more economic power in this country. We are not going to get there from a political voting standpoint. We are fragmented, and we are the fourth largest uh, ethnic group in this country – uh, and last time I checked, they, they don't give a medal for number four. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're not going to be at a point where we can just by uh, voting power uh, institute change in this country for ourselves. Second, let's face it. The model minority myth, which has now been around for almost 50 years and probably won't go away anytime soon, has led Asian-Americans to be largely viewed as white adjacent, uh, a minority group that does not need any help. and. I will tell you from my work in nonprofits, in Fortune 500, in startups, in corporate America, that that is absolutely the case. Like There is a pervasive view that Asian Americans do not need any help. And I'm not asking for a handout, Jerry, because I know that's not going to go anywhere. But what I am trying to do is I'm trying to arm our community and tell them the cavalry is not coming. (laughs) You are on your own. So, you have got to figure out how to build your own economic base, scale the corporate ladder in order to help the overall community. Because if you don't, none of us are going to be uh, able to do that. And the last thing I'll say on this, Jerry, is that I am really worried about the future uh, of the role that your children and my children will play in this country. And let me be more specific I worry about people with an A- East Asian face that can be mistook. For someone from China that is trying to take away not only blue-collar jobs, but white-collar jobs in this country. I'm afraid of what politicians are going to continue to say probably for the rest of our lifetime, like how China is the enemy and how the average American is going to look at my children walking the streets of America, who, by the way, are more American than 99.9% of Americans. They're going to look at my two boys and see a foreigner. And so we've got to amass not only economic but political power in this country and we all know that the roots of power in 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 this country start with money and because the vast majority of us are not going to be Jerry Yang <laughs> and Eric Yuan the way that we get more economic power is we've got to get more Asian Americans in the C suite in the in the senior senior levels and we've got to crack through the bamboo ceiling so that is why My broader societal agenda is that I really want to help empower our community because if we don't, I really fear for the world that our children are going to be raised in because I really fear for what's happening in this country and the um, animosity that we still see on the streets today towards people of East Asian descent because, again, we're viewed as the foreigner within, and the only way we're going to be able to combat that is if we amass more economic power which can lead to more power in the media and more power politically in this country
0: well said you know no money no mission obviously money drives a lot of access a lot of things that may not result in financial benefit for some people so yeah i mean and and for folks who are are chasing the money like i don't think there's anything wrong with it but don't use it all for yourself use it obviously to bring others up i I hate the term self-made because nobody's really self-made you Get where you are on, on, on the support and the love and kindness of other people. And you inspire, you Dave specifically, and, and for those of you listening, you inspire just through your actions. As I joked before, well, not joked, but like, we need to write more books. We need to be on more stages. We need to, people need to hear our voices, not just see our faces, to say like, hey, he looks like me or he looks like my dad or whatever, but literally to understand that I have a better idea of where you are in your life and therefore can give you better contextual, relevant advice than somebody who was born into a different society, different societal class, different race, different gender. And so, you know, that's where I think, you know, I, I love your story and teaching that next generation the tools that you've learned. And I don't think it's binary, right? Like, I don't think it's, it's, as you mentioned many times throughout our conversation today, it's fluid, it's gray, you need to adapt, but also be very mindful of just the ugly realities or the blunt realities of, what the world is and and the way that we live in. One final question or process or thought before we go, the show's called Dear Asian Americans. It is a love letter. It is a letter of anything you want to say from us to us, perhaps imagining it to be a younger version of Dave or a miserable Dave stuck in his cubicle at three in the morning, pumping out spreadsheets, or even to your kids. Say what you would love to say to the Dear Asian American community by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans.
1: This is a call to arms for all Asian-Americans out there. We, we need to fight for our office in the C-suite. We need to fight for our face on film. We need to fight for our voice on podcasts, on radio, on, on paper. We need to fight for our right in the government. Uh, we need to fight because we owe it to our children to make it a better world for them. And so fight for
0: what's right. And know that you're not alone in the fight. Look around. There are people who are willing to mentor you, to coach you, and, and more from a practical perspective, to invest in you and to invite you to the table and drag you into rooms so that neither of you are alone. And so I, I think, you know, the heads down mentality that so many of us were taught also is extremely lonely because we're told to just do it yourself and figure it out. But uh, for the benefit of yourself and those around you, and certainly for the next generation, uh, make this a community thing. Bring others along. Let's celebrate stuff together. Dave, I want to thank you again for making time to, to come on the show. You can't see this, but it's a cool book. It's got a little golden cartoon bull, one with a sword and a suit and a golf club, which I think is the, uh, the, the epitome of what a, a busy banker could be, golden nonetheless. And so thank you. Best of luck in your uh, next chapter as somebody who influences uh, the next generation of leaders and, and business leaders. In our community and beyond. Thanks again to Bennett for connecting us. Congratulations on all of your successes so far. Continue to stay healthy.
1: Thanks so much, Jerry. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode. Grateful for Dave for sharing his story and really excited to see what he builds. We recorded this episode a little while ago. So since then, he's launched an amazing new product called Real8 that's R E E L for films and eight. So it's real8.com. And it is a platform to help. Independent filmmakers get their projects funded and launched. And so check that out. And big thanks to you for tuning into our episode. Uh, connect with us on Instagram at Dear Asian Americans. You can listen to previous episodes on your podcast app or by going to dearasianamericans.com. If you want to send me an email, it's jerry at jerry And if you want to learn a little bit about me and what I do outside of podcasting, you can learn about that at jerry as well. This episode of Dear Asian Americans has been produced and created by me, Jerry Wan, and edited by KJ Rauke. As we always do, we wish you happiness, health, and safety. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you for listening to Dear Asian Americans.